This is a podcast of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan, a gospel-centered community seeking to glorify God by making, maturing, and multiplying disciples. For more information, check out fpchurch.tv. Our scripture reading this morning can be found in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. Again, that's the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. And I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures, with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And he will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts. Even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses 
and shakes his fist. Thanks, Tom. Good morning. I'm excited to be with you this morning as we continue to worship our Lord. And just before we dig into the text, let's just take a moment and pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather, to assemble together as your church, to sing your praises for the mercy we have received. Lord, we truly know that you are the sovereign one. You are ruler over all. And so, Lord, it is to you and you only that we can go and cry out for help because you and you alone are able to help us. And so, Lord, we are thankful for the fact that you do hear us. We're encouraged to go boldly to the throne of grace and to bring our petitions and to know that you, a loving Father, have heard us and will always do what is best. God, we pray on behalf of many in our own congregation. Uh, we think right now of, of Joanne Wilkins with the loss of Herb. We think, Lord, of the boys and the loss of their father and as they gather here to, to, to celebrate the life of Herb, Lord. I pray that you would... You would encourage them. I pray that you would provide the peace that they need, the strength, Lord. We are just so thankful for Herb's life, Lord. 35 years as a faithful treasurer here at First Pres. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that. Lord, we know that there are others that are struggling. I think just of, of Kerry Campus right now, Lord, and the struggle he is facing. And we pray for him. We pray for his doctors. We pray for Kathy. And we pray, God, that you would provide the strength and the healing his body needs. Lord, we pray that you provide a peace that surpasses all understanding. And God, I know that we could go on with many names of those who are struggling both physically and emotionally and, and even spiritually, Lord. And yet we look to you because you are God and you are able. You're able to free us from those besetting sins. You're able to free us from the, the desperate situation and the anxiety, the discouragement that we feel you're able to, to heal what is broken physically in us. And so we come before you, Lord, and we ask because we know you're a good Father who gives what we need. And so, Lord, we ask also that during this hour that, that we would be changed, that you would use your word to do your good and perfect will in us, Lord. Soften our hearts, unblock our ears, unblind our eyes, Lord. Help us to see you. Help us to find you lovely. Help us to pursue you, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would be changed. I pray that you'd fill my mouth with your word. And I wouldn't say anything more nor less than you've given me to say. But God, that I'd be faithful to your word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. God's people said. It's said that there are some things you can just know for sure. For example, when you pour that bowl of cereal, you will for sure find out you're out of milk, right? Can I get an amen to that? Or how about when you lay that baby down for a nap? You can be sure the dog will begin to bark. Or when you go to the voter booth and vote for that politician, you can be sure he will never fulfill his promises. These are just a few of the things we can be sure of, but there is one thing that's important that we understand we can be sure of. That is that God is always faithful to his word. God is always faithful to his word. Hear the word of the psalmist, Psalm 119 Verse 151, this is what the psalmist says. He says, You are near, O Lord, 
and all your commandments are true. Notice the confidence that the psalmist has. He has confidence that God is not a far-off God. He, he's there. He's present. He sees what we're dealing with and that God's word is true. His commandments are true. The confidence the psalmist has is the same confidence we should have. As we look at the book of Zephaniah, we have seen a, a prophet who's called by God and he's gone to the people of God, the people of Judah, but his job is to call them to repentance because they're not living as people of God. They're actually living like the people of the world. His call was for them to repent for their sins, to return to God. And this is important because Judah had been called with a responsibility to be a light to the nations, but they weren't acting like it. And because Judah wasn't living out what its call was, the nations were just getting worse in their sin. And so now, as we see in Zephaniah 2, the attention, as we will see, it turns a shift from, from Judah will now shift to the nations. Let's take a look. You look at verse 1, you see this command of the Lord. The command is this, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. Now, I mind you that this is following verse 1, or chapter 1, where God was speaking primarily to Judah. So who is he referring to in chapter 2, verse 1? He's referring to Judah. He's telling them, this holy assembly, this people of God, that they should gather together. He says it a second time, gather together. And then he describes who they are, how he sees them. You shameless nation. Interesting here in the words he chooses. The first word is shameless. He's calling out their sin. That they're living in outright rebellion of God. And one of the ways that we know they're doing this is they're living in idolatry. See, what they've done is they began to worship like the pagans. He's saying you're shameless. In fact, you're not even blushing over your sin. You're actually doing it boastfully. You're living shameless lives. Notice the second word God uses to describe them. He calls them a nation. That phrase is usually reserved for the Gentiles, you nation, you pagan people, you Gentile nations. But here he's saying, you, shameless nation. He's referring to the people of God. God is distancing himself from them, and he's saying very clearly that you are far from me. Notice the command as it begins to, to escalate here. Gather together. Gather. What he's really calling them to do, he's calling them to repent. He's calling them as, an, as a nation to turn. Now, this isn't unique. We saw this in World War II when the churches and the nations would gather for prayer. We saw it in England. We, we saw it even here in America following, um, following Pearl Harbor. The, the nation, the, the churches opened their doors and the people came to pray. In my generation, we saw it in 9-11. When the doors were open and the people gathered to pray, and they were coming, even repenting, asking God for help, pleading for God's mercy. But this call for God's mercy, this call for God's help, is actually a biblical call. It's that famous verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, which actually applies to the people of God. Listen to what it says. If my people, who are called by my name, if they humble themselves and they pray and they seek my face and they turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Listen to what he will do. I will forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. 
And so here in this chapter, Zephaniah is calling the people of Judah to do this, to seek God's face, to gather together, to humbly cry out and seek God's mercy. And then God uses a a, a repetition. Look at verse 2. Do this before the creed takes fact. Uh, Before the day passes like the chaff. Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Notice the idea of before. It's a timing situation. Do this. Hurry up. Act. Today's the day of salvation. Do this. Gather together. Humbly come. Repent. That's what he's calling to do. All before this decree takes effect. Why? Because God is true to his word. Because God's anger will come after them. Like a burning anger. And then he compares the time to like chaff. It's just there for a split second. Chaff is the breaking away of the wheat, the things that are left there on the threshing floor. As soon as the wind comes, they're, they're blown away. He's saying that's, you have a fraction of a second to respond. You need to move quickly. So again, we go back to verse 2. Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes like the chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. And then he says it yet one more time. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. This idea of, of, of repenting and responding is called to hurry up. And then notice what he calls them to do in response to that. Verse 3, he says, seek the Lord. All you who are humble of the land, you who do just commands, seek the righteousness, seek humility. He's telling them, not only are you to to gather, but you need to seek my face. You need to seek me. You need to humble yourselves and turn your posture towards me. This is the call that God gives to the people known as Judah. Really, this is a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy. And if you notice, all through Zephaniah, I keep referencing De- Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy was the book that King Josiah found or was given to him and was discovered after it was hidden away from King Manasseh so that he wouldn't destroy it. The, the book is brought back and Josiah reads it and it cuts him to the heart because the book of Deuteronomy is filled with two things. The book of Deuteronomy is filled with blessings and cursings. And so here in the book of Deuteronomy, we read these words in chapter 4, verses 29. It says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Notice the call to search. We need to search after God. We need to seek him. But this searching requires all of us. It's not just simply going through the motion bodily. Well, I showed up at the assembly I'm not simply opening your mouth, I'm saying the words. It's a matter of checking yourselves, that your heart is pursuing the Lord. This is what God is calling them to. He's calling them back to true repentance. He's calling them to seek humility. He's calling them to seek the mercy of the Lord. Friends, can I say this to you this morning? This is good news. Right here in the middle of a book filled with judgment... There's good news. The good news is that God says it's not too late. Friends, that's good news. It's good news for a bunch of sinners to hear that it's not too late. But we need to act before it is too late. And the way we need to act is we need to seek God. We need to seek His face. We need to come humbly. We need to be prepared to admit our sin. 
And friends, this is good news for the wayward. The good news is that we can seek God and he will be found if we truly have a humble heart. If we truly are ready to willing to repent. But the question is this morning, is that you? I'm not asking about your neighbor. I'm not even asking about your kids. I'm asking about you. Is that your posture? Because see, that's the message this morning that Zephaniah is giving to Judah. They need to be willing to repent. This is a heart issue because the wrath of God is coming. And so God begins to give a picture of what this wrath looks like. Now he mentioned it in chapter 1. He talked about the darkness. He talked about the power, the awfulness of it. But in chapter 2, one of the things he's going to say very clearly is there's nowhere to hide from the wrath of God. He's going to actually give directions, a north, south, east, west. There's nowhere you can go to hide from the wrath of God. Now he begins in verse 4. And he begins by talking about these different places. That's how we know there's directional involvement here. In verse 4, he begins to really talk about a particular group of people. The people group he's talking about is the Philistines. Now the Philistines live to the west of Judah. Uh, the Philistines, as you know, uh, occupied a lot of territory. In fact, uh, the, the people of Israel battled the Philistines repeatedly. Saul, Samson, David, they all battled the Philistines. You remember the great Goliath? There's this, there's this great enemy, uh, the Philistines. And I want you to notice the land acquisition that they have. He talks about Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. He mentions all these places that are to the west, but what he, what he does is he says, look what happens to all those places. All these main cities of the Philistines, they're destroyed. Gaza is deserted. Ashkelon becomes a desolation. Ashdod, people were driven out. Ekron is uprooted. And why? Why is this happening? Because the Philistines were constantly at war with God's people. And so what does God say he's going to do to them? Look at verse 5. The word of the Lord is against you. The Lord will destroy them until there is no habitation left. You say, okay, if God's going to destroy the West, I'm going to run to the East. Well, he deals with that too. He talks about the Moabites and the Amorites in verses 8 through 11. These are the cousins of Judah. These are the ones who come from the lineage of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And they have a sinful past too. If you remember, they're the ones who wouldn't let the tribe, the tribe of Israel to walk through with Moses through their land. They said, no, you can't enter here. You need to go around. And this group of people, they were known to ridicule and taunt the people of God. They hated their cousins. They were filled with pride. They thought they were better than the Israelites. And look what God says to them in verse 9. They will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Or verse 11, the Lord will be awesome, not for them, against them. So they can't hide in the east. They can't hide in the west. What about the south? Well, there's a country by the name of Cush. Cush is the lowest parts of Africa. Uh, Cush was an important place because many of the pharaohs uh, came from this place who ruled Egypt. But notice what he says. He's basically saying in verse 12, you too, Cush, or you also, Cush, meaning that your sin and your outcome is the same as all the others. Notice what God declares. You will be destroyed by the sword. So the south isn't safe either. Well, what about the north? What if we all just run to the north? Well, this is where he deals with Assyria. 
This area, they're they were a sinful people because of their pride. They thought they were stronger than God. They thought they were stronger than everyone. In fact, one of the claims they make, according to our text, is they say, I am and there is no one else. They're, they're full of pride. If you remember, this is the very people that Jonah was to go and preach to in Nineveh. And Jonah didn't want to go. He said, God, they don't deserve your mercy. God, they don't deserve your compassion. That sounds like a horrible thing to say. Well, not when you knew who these people were. They would collect skulls and keep them at the gate of all the people they conquered to show their strength and their intimidation factor. We're better than everyone else. But hear the word of the Lord to Nineveh. Verse 13, Nineveh will be a desolation, a dried waste like a desert. Verse 13, God will stretch out his hand against them. Or how about verse 15? Everyone who passes by her will hiss and shake their fist. Well, what's the point of this text? There's no place to hide. You can't hide in the east, you can't hide in the west, you can't hide in the north, you can't hide in the south. There's no place to hide from God's judgment. Judgment is coming. And all of these nations, they're going to be destroyed. God's decree is absolute. Now, the truth of that matter is it took over a century for all of these countries to fail. It took over a hundred years, but God ultimately showed his sovereignty. And because he showed his sovereignty to defeat all the enemies of Israel, God is ultimately showing his sovereignty in that he can fulfill his mercy. His mercy to the people if they would just repent. If they would just come humbly and acknowledge their need of Him. Second Peter says it well. Too often we count the Lord's slowness as though the Lord doesn't care. Second Peter 3.9 says this though. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. Don't miss this. God is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is important. Because it shows the character and the heart of God. God is patient. And even now, sometimes we wonder, where's God in the mess that we're living in in this country? Where, where is he? Why isn't he doing anything? He's patient. He's loving. He's working in the midst of everything. It took over a hundred years for all of these nations to fall. But God was faithful. His word was true. And in the end, all those who didn't repent were judged. And so he says to Judah, understand this, I'm faithful to my word, and my word is a key word. Look at the word, perhaps. The word perhaps. The word perhaps is found at the end of verse 3. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Friends, that's an important word. That's a word of hope. Perhaps. Perhaps God will protect you. God will hide you. God will shield you from the wrath and the anger of the Lord. Understand that God's rule is universal and absolute. Understand that there's no hiding from God and that we're called is to repent and to believe that God is truly in charge. But perhaps He will hide you. Well, my goal this morning is to show you that we're going to move from perhaps to absolutely sure. I want you to see that this morning in the promises that God gives his people. It's not just simply maybe, maybe not. 
But God's love is absolute. See, understand first that Judah was supposed to be an example. We've already studied that at the beginning. In Isaiah 49, 6, they were to be the lights to the nations. But they weren't. And so we're told in 1 Peter 4, verse 17, that judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And the Lord is working in calling out their sin. But the Gentile nations, they're just doing what they always do. And God is judging them for their sin as well. Yet in the midst of this judgment, this judgment to the nations, I want you to see this. God is showing mercy to a remnant of Judah. God says in verse 7, the seacoast shall become a possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. So as he's lashing out his judgment upon the nations, he actually promises that a, a, a remnant will hold possession of the seacoast. The Lord their God will be mindful of them. Look what it says at the end of verse 7. He will restore their fortunes. There's not sweeter text in all of Scripture than to hear that these sinful people, God is mindful of them. He's merciful to them. He's saving a remnant from them. How about verse 9? He says, God's remnant would plunder them. Talking about the nations. God's people, his remnant, would plunder them. And the survivors of my nation shall possess them. Again, notice now he's connecting himself to that nation. He's connecting himself to those people of Judah. But this time it's in the form of a remnant. But this is absolute assurance for this remnant. They're told that they will not be utterly annihilated. But that God is saving a people unto himself from the tribe of Judah. And friends, we know the answer to this, but who comes from the line of Judah? Jesus. See, Jesus is the hope of the remnant. Jesus is the one who ultimately saves. Jesus is the one who went to the cross to die for our sins. Jesus is the one in whom we are hidden and saved from judgment. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians 3.3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See the word hidden? It's the same idea in, in chapter 2, verse 3, when he talks about us being hidden from the wrath of God. We're hidden in Christ. Christ for us is that perfect ark. Remember the ark old Noah went into and all the animals? The judgment of God, the waters of judgment beat on that ark. The rain came down, the waves stirred. But everyone inside that ark was hidden and safe from the judgment. And the same is true here in Zephaniah, that there will be hidden a remnant who will be saved. A remnant who will be protected. And who is that remnant that saves us? That's Jesus. He is the one in whose line there is salvation. So let me say this very clearly this morning. Because of Christ... We do not live in a perhaps we will, God will save us. But because of Christ, we live in an absolute assurance that he has saved us. But let me say that again. Because of Christ, we do not live in a perhaps God will save us. But because of Christ, we live in an absolute assurance that he has saved us. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. And it's right here in the Old Testament book as God talks about a remnant from Judah that will be saved. And from the line of Judah comes Jesus. 
And all those who are in Jesus are brought into his family, adopted into his family, and we're given that lineage and hope as we're associated with Christ. But here's the deal. You didn't have to become Jewish to be saved. Now listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 3.28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus. Jesus is the hope and Jesus transcends. Jesus offers hope both to the Jew and to the Gentile. But the key is they must be hidden in him. They must run to him. They must seek him. They must hold on to Christ. They must find Christ lovely. For after all, isn't that what they do in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10? They find Christ lovely. Listen to what they do. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. That's the remnant. From every nation, from every tribe and people and language, they were all standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice. Listen to this. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They're finding Him lovely. They're finding Him lovely. They're adoring Him. They're worshiping Him. Because they recognize how beautiful the mercy of God is. That they can be hidden in Christ and safe from the judgment. This is the call of every believer. Save me, a sinner. So church, I ask you this morning, are you finding joy in the good news of God's mercy? Do you find true joy in the good news of God's mercy? Let's be honest. Some of us, we're just so used to hearing it. There's no joy anymore. Friend, if you truly knew what you were saved from, there would be joy. If you really knew the one who saved you, there would be joy for all that he endured for you. He was the ark. And all who are in him are safe, but he took the beating of the judgment of God for you. So that you could have the mercy. How could you not find him lovely? Isn't that why the women run to the, te- run to the tomb? They love him. Isn't that why when news reaches the disciples, they run to the tomb? Because they love him. The question this morning is, do you love him? And do you truly love Christ? Do you find him lovely? Do you find the mercy of God to be absolutely amazing in your life? We need to. But here's the scary thing. If you don't, maybe it's because you're not really in Christ. Maybe the reason you don't find Jesus beautiful is because you're not in Christ. Well, there's a definite distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are not. Do you know what it is? Humility. Humility. See, that was the problem of Judah and the nations. When I talk about Judah, I mean the the broad nation Judah, the unrepenting Judah and the nations. The problem was pride. They thought far too much of themselves. And if we're honest, so did we, at least at one point. And maybe some of us still do. But we need to remember something very important. 
I didn't coin this. It's been said by many pastors for many years. But the only thing we bring to salvation, the only thing we bring to salvation, is the very sin you need to be saved from. Fred, if that's not humbling, I don't know what is. The only thing you bring to your salvation is the sin you need to be saved from. That's humbling. I think for Christians, humility should just be natural. It should just ooze out of us. See, it's the only proper response in the face of God's mercy. Humility is the only proper response. There's something about humble people. My wife just took our dog to the vet, and, and she's always amazed by our vet. 70-year-old man, he's always dressed to the nines, but he gets right on the floor and he just starts loving on those dogs. He's hugging them and playing with them. And you're just amazed because you see such a humble man who really loves his profession and he loves the animals he cares for. And if I can step back and go, no, that's a humble man, that's, that's a good man. How much more beautiful is Jesus than a vet who plays with animals? That Jesus would go to the cross and bleed for us sinners. I mean, think about Jesus' humility. He took on human flesh and he was God. God's a spirit, but he humbled himself by, by taking on human flesh, by being limited by time and space. He was born not just a, a rich family, but he was born to a young virgin. He was raised not in, a, not in a palace, but he was raised in a working class carpenter's family. For what purpose? For us. He understands us. He knows our struggles. And yet he was viewed as a nobody. He was viewed as one who, who nobody really cared to hear anything from or know about. And yet all along he was king of the world. And this king, what did he do? He humbly went to a cross we deserved and he died in our place. And friends, that's why Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, he says, you need to have this mind among yourselves. You Christians need to be humble. You Christians need to understand that humility is what matters because humility testifies that you're in the family. Humility desperately shows that you belong to Jesus, the one who was humble. So Paul says, have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's yours. It's your possession. You belong it if you're in Christ. He goes on to describe in verse 6 who this Jesus is, who though he was the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Friends, don't miss this. The believer's call is to be humble. And it's not a, a humility we can conjure up for ourselves, but it's one that truly begins on the inside because we have changed hearts. We see for the first time the mercy and the love of God because we see ourselves how ugly we really are. But like John Stott's quote here, he says, the cross is done by us, but it's also done for us. Let me explain what John Stott means. He says, the reason the cross exists is because of our sins. We, we nailed Jesus there. But understand that in that moment, God had that cross as the very place 
that forgave us of our sins. So while we're sinning, even in the very act of sin, God is in the very act of forgiving and showing mercy through Christ. How can we not be humble? How can we not come and admit our need and be in awe of his mercy? Church, hear me then. Hear me well then. The gospel begins with humility. Don't miss that this morning. The gospel begins with humility as it reveals our sin. The gospel continues in humility as it shows us we cannot save ourselves. And yet it is capped off in humility as it shows us the overflowing mercy of God in Jesus Christ who saves us. Humbleness is all around the gospel. Humbleness is found in the gospel. The question is, is humbleness in you? Church, humility brings joy as Jesus brings joy. Humility brings peace. Oftentimes, humble people don't have to struggle with all the strife of the world because they're just going through and love covers a multitude of sin, man. How often many of us, we don't know what joy and peace are because we're not humble. But we can know the mercy of God only through humility. That's why that call in verse 3 is to humbly seek the Lord. It says, humble, the humble in the land seek the Lord. Church, I ask you this morning, is that you? Are you humbly seeking the Lord. In our text this morning, we see that mercy is on display. On our text this morning, we see that we are called to seek, to search with all of our being who God is. In our sermon this morning, we see an effect of a heart that truly is seeking is one who's humble. Because that means we are tied to the line of Christ. We're in Christ. We're the remnant that he came to save. We're hidden in him. The question, friend, is, is that you? Let's pray. Father, humility is a thing that's hard for us to grasp. Our culture pushes back on it, saying it's weak, viewed as being passive. It's viewed in many ways as pathetic. And yet, we're told that our Lord came humbly. How can we do any different? God, break our hearts. Soften the stiffness and the stone that so easily affects us. Draw us to yourself. Help us to truly see our sin. Help us to truly see our powerlessness. That we cannot redeem ourselves. And Lord, help us to truly see the mercy you provide through the line of Jesus. God, I pray that we would humbly come and that we would seek his face and that we would be saved male and female, those in bonds and those who are free, 
Jew and Gentile. May we find the salvation and the mercy that Christ provides. We pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. This has been a podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Trenton, Michigan. For more information, please visit us online at fpchurch.tv.